it's like a research restaurant. So like you yeah. go in <laughs> yeah. and you have like this this menu, and so like would you like the uh, uh, we have on the menu this this lovely decision making yeah. paradigm. We have yeah. this uh, trolley problem. Yeah. Hello and welcome to uh, Marginally Significant. My name is Andrew Smith and I'm here with Andrew Monroe. Hello. Twyla Wingrove. Hello. And Chris Holden. Hey. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about conferences. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about just kind of conferences, why we go and whatnot, but focusing a little bit on uh, perhaps disparities in terms of um, people's ability to go to conferences, primarily due, due to funding. And um, Andrew, you kind of um, had the idea for this topic, so um, obviously, as you already know, I was going to let you uh, um, kind of run this and see where you wanted to start with this idea, but like, where did it come from? What what were you thinking about? Yeah, so I've been thinking a little bit about the cost of of attending conferences lately, so, you know, we're coming into summer right now, and, and so my conference cycle kind of begins in summer, and um over the last couple of years, especially since like my startups uh, expired, um, I've been becoming really choosy about what conferences I, I'll, I'll go to uh, and uh, passing on more conferences than not. And, and I was thinking about, well, why is that? What am I, I be missing out on? Uh, having conversations with a couple of my, my colleagues and, and we all have sort of this feeling of like, yeah, we know that we really need to go to these conferences because they're opportunities to network and show off your work and things like that. But we have an increasingly hard time justifying the cost of them. And so, uh, and I should like sort of set this out, like these are my friends from, uh, I guess what we consider like comprehensive or master's granting institutions or, or R2. So these are not individuals from, from R1 universities. Uh, and so when we've been talking about this, we've been talking about it in the context of yeah, it would be great to go, but I can't justify spending that amount of money or like going further into debt or I just can't afford it. And so we seem to be making decisions about attending conferences based not on whether or not we think they would be sort of professionally good, but based on just basic financial limitations. And it seems that like that constraint is not evenly distributed across the academy. And I think that this has sort of a pernicious larger effect where people with money and prestige are then able to go and obtain more money and prestige. Uh, and so you get this, I think there's sort of a, a larger, I don't know, I don't know if I want to frame it in like social justice terms, but I will. Uh, <laughs> there's sort of like a larger social justice worry here about like who gets to speak, who gets prestige, whether or not we have a sort of self-reinforcing cycle simply by dint of the way that like conferences are priced. Uh, so that that's my my sort of general overview of, of the the issue at hand. Yeah. So um you know you mentioned that you know you, you have this or this desire to go to conferences because of what you get out of it. And I was wondering maybe if we should just all talk a little bit about what we typically do get out of conferences, um things that might be very obvious but maybe things that are a little bit less obvious that we get out of it. Um just to kind of you know, set the, the tone of like, I don't know, should we even be going? Is it even worth it to go to them? Yes. <laughs> Twilight, go for it. What do you get out of conferences? Well, which ones do you, yeah, what conferences do you typically go to? Do you go to smaller or larger conferences? I typically go to smaller okay. conferences, um, but national. I don't go to regional conferences very much. So, and I have gone to APA when I've been involved, <laughs> and if I've had a service role, then I've attended. Um, but the main conference that I go to every year is the Division 41 APLS conference, and then um, sometimes I make it to some others like Law and Society. And so they're on the smaller side. They're certainly not on the scale of APA or APS. Um, I would say that honestly, the number one thing I get out of it is socializing. Mm -hmm. So I go because there are people that I don't get to see very often that I want to reconnect with. And the conference is a good way to do that. And so I know that's not really a professional (laughs) reason, but I don't think I'm alone (laughs) in in that. Um, Professionally, well, and I will say, so the people I'm reconnecting with, of course, are people who are in my field, right? And so there are 
um, sort of like hidden benefits of of reconnecting. So um, just especially when I was early career, just learning a lot about how um, decisions are made at different institutions, what the job responsibilities are at different institutions really helped me navigate career in my early stages. And I think it's still, as I take on more leadership roles, then my peers are also taking on more leadership roles. And so I get a lot of um, just help and support in learning about how how things are run and what the responsibilities are in different institutions. So that's one thing I get out of it. Another thing I get out of it is staying on top of the state of the field. So especially for teaching purposes, for those of us who are teaching specialized courses that are related to the conference, then inevitably I would say every year when I get back from APLS, I work whatever observations I made into the the course in terms of just reporting back to the students. These are the things that people are doing now, and it seems like this topic is moving in this direction, that kind of thing. Um, what else do I get out of it? I don't know. What do others get out of it? Yeah, I think my initial hesitancy was that I didn't want to say that I just socialized. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks for breaking the ice on that. Um, no, but that is really like a, a big thing. And often the people I'm socializing with are also people I'm doing research with. So it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. Um, I think I've heard it said elsewhere before, but like the, the big thing for conferences for me is not the actual like conference events. It's everything that happens around it. Um, but yeah, it is also cool to see like what's happening in terms of can I bring this stuff into the classroom? Is there stuff that I can update my you know, slides with? Um, I, I, you know, even with more recent developments, I think conferences are still a really good way to keep your finger on the pulse of the field. Um, so it makes it tough, though, too, when, you, when you're when you on a limited budget, you have a little bit of FOMO. Um, I don't know if, you know, posting everything online corrects that, but um, we can talk about that later. But yeah, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing I get. Um, and then sometimes there's really cool sessions, like at SPSP, there was the podcast session that was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, and like you were saying too, I think earlier in, in, in your career, it's a good way to get information. And, um, you know, more recently, since I'm starting my third year now, I was kind of like seeing what other people are doing at, at that stage and what their hurdles have been in the first couple of years. So. The other thing I'd add is that I do get a lot of methodological ideas. Yeah. So one thing that I always do when I'm attending sessions is get great, just get inspired to do more research and get great right. ideas for sort of novel manipulations or novel tests of old topics. Right. So that's funny. Yeah, you guys stole basically like the two things that I want to talk about. Well, one, because a lot of people, Chris, like you said, a lot of people have said, oh, a lot of the, the um, utility of conferences is the stuff that's not the, the talks, let's say. Um, but I actually think I get a lot out of the talks. Now, it's pretty rare that I go to a talk and I, I say, like, oh, wow, that was, you know, exactly the type of research I want to do, and I'm going to build off of that, and it's that topic area. But there's so many times, Twilight, like what you were saying, where it, it goes into my teaching, and, and even things that aren't necessarily exactly, um, you know, what you might think would go into to the teaching. Like, for example, in my um, social class, um, we talk about, like, failures of intuition and, and how we don't know what we would do. There was a talk I went to a while ago that was looking at um, um, when, like, a police officer says, you know, hey, can I search your car? Um, you know, you could say no, unless they have probable cause and so on. And um, But what they did is they looked at, well, what do people think they would do and what would they actually do? Mm -hmm. And so they put people in a situation where they had a researcher ask somebody to see their phone and basically kind of said it in a mildly shady way. And, and when they brought it up as a hypothetical, virtually everybody said, like, oh, no, I wouldn't do that in an actual situation. People said that they would. And so even though they were putting it in this very legal context, you were a legal psychologist who were doing a study, they were putting it in that context. I mean, it was a great uh, um, kind of way or an example that then students understand. And so that's one of those things that, like, I didn't go to that talk thinking I would get anything out of it, but then I just realized, oh, hey, that, that fits. And then the other thing, in terms, in addition to the teaching, just like uh, Twilight, like you said, is some of the methodological things, just things that I wouldn't have necessarily um, thought of, um, that like, oh, hey, I don't care about the, the topic per se, but the way that they did the study, or even some of the different um, techniques that they were using. At the last um, judgment decision-making conference, there was this um, talk about, um, what was it called? Um, 
meta studies where basically it's kind of like the like running just a huge factorial design, um, but the the data analysis is essentially like a cross between like a meta analysis and multi level modeling. But you can do a whole lot more with it than just running one or two studies. And so things like that, that I just would not have heard of, nor would I read a paper on going to this talk, you see that and you get kind of, um, uh, I don't know if inspired is the right word, but, but energized about doing these different, different types of, of studies. And so this methodological stuff, um, but to which are, again, are things that, that weren't in my specific area, but it still is useful. So I think there's a lot in the talks themselves. Now, I also agree there's a lot outside of it. And, and one of those, um, that actually, Nora, you, you brought up a while ago was, um, um, students and, and how helping students to, um, to network. And so, like, you know, our, um, you know, grad students, a lot of them are going on to PhD programs. And so now more recently, um, there have been a couple of times where I've been able to introduce the students to potential PhD right. advisors. And, and obviously, I don't know if it actually helps or not, but, but I mean, it can't hurt. It's, it's got to be useful. And so I think that's another really valuable. It, it could hurt. If the, that's true. Yeah. When it's me, yeah. it probably hurts. Most other people, it's probably Yeah. Oh, no, Smith? No. Yeah, no. You, no you're you're trying to do Yeah, no. Done. <laughs> so, yeah. So most people, it would help them. But for some people, yeah. No, I actually don't tell them they're my student. I, I say that they're somebody else. Here's the student you should really get to know. They have amazing advisor. No, I didn't. Sounds pretty cool, is what I heard. Yes, exactly. So you got that. But anyway, but I think that could be another useful thing that that is oftentimes kind of overlooked and and like some of one of those like hidden benefits of going to a to a conference. Yeah, I I don't think I have anything really new to add to that's pretty typical. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I have nothing new to say. Uh, but I mean, to maybe like put all the things together, it seems like there's sort of like four key things that, that we get. We get hyping students um, and, and helping sort of grow our, our students professionally. Certainly socialization. And for me, like the size of the conference sort of affects how much just like socializing with friends is what I get out of it versus uh, more sort of professional things. And so the other things that are, you know, we get inspired, we get maybe one or two new ideas. Uh, we also maybe meet some new people, make some, some new connections. So, I mean, it seems like conferences are worth it then. I mean, our conferences are often flawed and, and, um, the bigger they are, the sort of harder it is to maybe get new ideas or the harder it is to like actually meet new people. Um, and so instead it's just, you know, socializing with your friends, which can still be something that, that is worthwhile because while you socialize, because many of our friends are also people who study things that are broadly related to like what we're interested in, new collaborations, new ideas can, can come out of that too. So certainly worthwhile. Yeah. And I would, I mean, add to that too, there's like, even if I don't learn anything, you know, directly relevant, just getting excited and enthusiastic about research, like a lot of times... Um, you know, especially with the, the conference I go to every year is the judgment decision making conference and it's in November. And so at that point in the semester, I'm oftentimes kind of burnt out on, yeah. on research because I'm having to focus so much on the teaching we're getting towards the end of the semester and then to get like re-energized and like, no, I, I do love doing this and that's right. And I know there's all this other teaching stuff I have to do, which is great, but, but man, just getting that, that enthusiasm, I think is, is useful and it kind of carries me through there. So and, and that's, even if I don't even learn anything new, there could be value. So I mean, just yeah. to your point of like, yeah. yes, I see the value in it. I think there's value in it. Yeah. To play devil's advocate though, like I can, I never, <laughs> how do I say this? It's not like I think back and about, like at each conference I go to, there might be one session that actually sticks in my memory. And so if I think of the actual research content, um, posters don't stick in my memory. And so... I'm spending $2,000 or whatever it is to attend this conference, and I get all of these things. I get a lot of benefit from the conference, but less benefit by attending the actual sessions. I mean, I do get inspired, and I do, but, like, I don't remember details. I don't necessarily build on anything that I've seen. I don't go back to the notes that I took. And so are we really... Getting, I mean, are there other ways to get what we're getting out of it when we're not, where we're not spending that much money? Like, if I'm just hanging out with my friends, then I can go on vacation with my friends. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there are like two things there. Like, so one is, 
um, isn't worth the money. Right. So, like, you know, however much we get out of it, let's just say it costs, you know, $2,000, is that, did we get $2,000 worth of utility out of it? And that's obviously a, a hard one, because I would imagine there's going to be huge variability. Like, if a, a conference turns into one really important paper, well, then, yeah, okay, that maybe was $2,000. Most of the time, it won't turn into that. So, it, it would definitely be hard to, to quantify that. But I think it's a good point. But the other, which is a really interesting idea, is like, well, are there other ways of getting this information? So, you know, we talked about getting the information. We talked about some of the networking stuff. Are there other ways of doing it that doesn't require spending all of this money? I mean, I'm not super bullish on, <laughs> on that. And I'm, yeah. I'm happy to hear other people's perspectives. But I think in terms of, so if one of the major things that we get is socializing with other people, sitting down, talking um, then you have to be able to sit down and, mm -hmm. and talk with them, like maybe over a fresca or, you know, whatever. Uh, donuts. Donuts, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know, it was a fresca. Because some people don't drink, so I, I don't want to like put alcohol norms here. Um, so I think that, you know, I've heard people kind of like, oh, what we need are like, uh, online conferences or virtual conferences where like you could disseminate your work and you can give talks and you can get feedback and like that's probably true to some extent but when I think about like how how engaged am I when there's a person sitting in front of me and we're having a conversation about an idea versus like I'm sitting and watching a YouTube video I mean I I, I don't think there's really any any comparison between those two things. Like one is going to be more engaging and I think therefore more profitable than the other. I, but I take Twyla's point that conferences, I think, have a really low hit rate. Uh, if we think about you know, a new idea or a new contact or, or something that is professionally valuable as a, as a hit in this context, I think any single conference is going to have a pretty low hit rate. And so the question that I would ask about conferences is not maybe on a, on a single sample, but like at the aggregate level. Um, at the aggregate level, I think conferences are worth it because at the aggregate level, what you spend is probably justified by what you get out of it at the aggregate. But I think any one conference is going to be highly variable. I agree. And I guess I was thinking not about alternatives to the conference, um, but about ways to beef up the way the programming is structured or change the way the program is delivered in person mm -hmm. so that people are getting, so that you can increase the hit rate, mm -hmm. right? So are there alternatives in that way? Yeah, I think the, the SIPs model is really interesting um, because you're sitting down with people working on stuff you want to work on. Uh, I mean, there are some things that are a little more structured and like there's the kind of roll call thing at the end of the conference every day and you kind of update on what happened. Um, but it's, I mean, it's an interesting alternative. Um, and it does feel more like you're socializing the whole time. And I got to meet a lot of really cool and awesome people and catch up with people that I know. Um, so I think that's, that's one possible alternative. And I think, so, yeah, I haven't been to SIP. So what, like, if I understand it correctly, the model is more like, Hey, we have a, problem or, or some thing that we want to try to figure out and then you kind of it's like a work group small work groups towards that is that what it is or yeah so there's anything from uh i'm forgetting the names that they use but there's kind of like three tiers so the first is just like you, you throw an idea out there and they even have open slots on the calendar so like day of you can go in um you know when i went i was i was bouncing around ideas about mturk and what that means for open science so i threw that up on the board and you know people came and we just kind of talked about it um, I'm not going next year, unfortunately, but somebody can pick up the torch with this. Uh, and then kind of the next thing is you kind of, uh, move it up to more of that work group sort of thing. Um, and then there's also the hackathons. Um, so I might've butchered the order there, but, um, yeah, there's, there's varying degrees, but the, the idea is that you are all sitting down together and working on an idea that you're all interested in. Um, and sometimes you divvy up the task, you know, so with a couple of the groups I was a part of. There were two or three of us working on one section of this, two or three working on the other. But we'd all come back together as a group and then would report to the whole conference. So, but, I mean, so that would work well for those types of things. But what about like, hey, I just have some awesome research I want to share. Yeah. And they don't really have, um, it's not set up for that, right? Yeah, I think that's why SIPs did what they did because okay. it's not so much about yeah. like, 
promoting this this project. I yeah, mean, which makes sense for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there there is some of that there though too. To be fair, like there okay. people come up with new ideas and they'll talk about why they think that this is you know good, and okay. people will get on on board with it. Um, but yeah, if you were bringing a paper that you just published, mm-hmm. you I don't know how that would work. I don't know what that would look like. So in terms of like thinking of alternative formats that might be interesting, um, you know, we could, you know, so right now, typically it's like 15 minutes or so of your presentation, um, you know, with a bunch of people. And then, you know, sometimes there's like two or three minutes of, of Q and a afterwards. Oftentimes that's not particularly useful anyway, and people go long and whatnot. Um, one thing that, the, that I've heard was what if we just shortened it to like your talk there, there were like, you know, I don't know, five or six, just more like data blitz talks of just here's five minutes of the projects. And then you almost break up into small groups and whoever's project you want to go talk to them, you guys all sit in the side. And then that's where you could give a little bit more information, but only to the people who are interested in it. They could ask you questions right at that time. Um, and so it's, it's, it would be a very different feel. But it would be more interactive, I guess it would be. So it's like a research restaurant. So like you yeah. go in <laughs> yeah. and you have like this this menu and so like would you like the uh, uh, we have on the menu this this lovely decision making yeah. paradigm, we have yeah. this uh, trolley problem, yeah. we have I don't know, those are the only two things that I can think about uh, on my menu and then like people there can sort of select what they want to sit in on yeah. and then you actually get to have like an, uh, a more in-depth discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a much better format than here's my 15 minute attempt at a TED talk so that like, everyone can think that I'm cool. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's, that's kind of, or, sorry, probably like 15 minutes, but like 12 minute mm-hmm. with like three minutes for Q and A, which, as you say, like aren't terribly helpful most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, are just for like you demonstrating that you're smart and other people should think that you're smart. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've I've been in a session like that. I, oh, I presented. Uh, I think it was SIPA actually that did it. Uh, Southeastern Psychological Association. Uh, There's like five people. We each gave like a two to three minute talk, and then, like you said, we branched off into groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was good. It worked. It went well. Um, it might also reduce overhead, I would guess, right? Because you're not you don't necessarily have to have the big rooms at conferences, right? Maybe you could go out in the lobby. So maybe that could be another way to not only change what the conference is doing, but cut down on the cost and kind of get back to this idea of like, how do we make it affordable and approachable for all types of people at all levels of institutions or careers? Can I ask a, a tangential, but I think related question? Did we say no? No. <laughs> I, mean, I guess you could, but I, I was going to ask it anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, what's the optimal size of a, uh, for a conference to your mind? Like how many, how many people is... Too little, how many people are too few? Uh, or sorry, uh, how many people are too many? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the so the two conferences that I that I, I semi-regularly attend. So I always go to the judgment decision making conference and then Which I'll, is a bigger conference. Is, well, I, I would say that's a smaller one. And then because I contrast that with um, SPSP, which is huge. So the um, the JDM conference, I don't remember how many people go there. Maybe a thousand a year. Okay. Um, and then SPSP is probably what up to like four or five thousand now. I think it's getting close. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so I, I think SPSP is too big. Um, but the JDM conference, at least now that I've been going for uh, eight nine years in a row, um, I like. I mean, I think it's a decent size, and you know, there are enough different talks going on that I can pretty much always find something interesting. There's usually They'll probably have like three sessions at any given time, so there's only three kind of things competing with each other. Um, Because I hate when there's like 20 different things that are competing with each other. Um, And so they're, you know, but that's enough to where I can find stuff that's interesting. Um, It's small enough to where I'm starting to get to know some of the people and I see them regularly. So even people who, you know, the only reason that I, or way that I know them is actually from the the conference itself. Um, And so so I think that's a, a decent size. Um, it, it is getting towards the larger ends, but but much smaller than that. Oh, well, I don't know. I haven't been to many okay. that are a lot smaller than that, I guess. So you'd call like a uh, multi-thousand, so like a four th- or four or five thousand dollar dollar uh, person conference is maybe like on the large side. Like is APS, APA, like how big are those conferences? They're bigger than that. Okay. Yeah, I don't. Oh, so I don't know. Yeah, the Uba conference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I haven't been to APS in years, okay. but APA is certainly larger than that. 
Um, but APA has all of the divisions do their own programming, and then there's cross-programming. Oh, yeah. And so you can go to APA and only go to your division programming, okay. yeah. and mm. then it doesn't seem that big. I mean, it's in a huge convention center, so that part's different. It's a small field. Exactly. Um, I would say APLS, I think, is pushing 2,000, close to 2,000. I'm not positive, but I think that's about where it is. Um, I, how big are, so you mentioned SEPA. Yeah. And I know you go to a Southeastern, the Southeastern Social Center. Triple SP, yeah. Yeah. How big are those? 200 people, maybe 150. Yeah. Like pretty small for Triple SP. So what do you see as the advantages of going to the smaller regional conferences? I think you actually get to have, so because there's less programming, um, you get to have longer conversations. You can, it makes it a little bit easier to focus on things for me rather than like, oh, here's a talk, here's another talk. Oh, I've got to figure out how to like fit in the three different competing talks that I want to get to that are right after one another in like four different rooms. Uh, somehow three talks are in four rooms. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so in a smaller conference, so like my favorite conference that I go to is the Society for Philosophy and Psychology, uh, so SPP. Uh, and that one is probably, and everything is an S or a P and a J. Like if you've got those, you have everything in social psychology uh, and personality psychology, maybe. Um, but that's like somewhere around like the 300 to 500 mark. And I think like that's a pretty sweet spot where it's big enough that you are getting a lot of really interesting content, but it's also specialist enough that you probably care about all of the different amounts of content and you can then like actually break out and have longer conversations. Like for me, the main thing that I get out of a conference is usually like outside of the talks. It's outside of like the formal structure of the, here's my 15 minute Ted light talk. So I'd echo that, that like that two to 300, maybe closer to four is optimal. Uh, that's why I like one to the triple SP as well. Um, but I wonder though too, does that make it more affordable for people? They're also typically like, yeah, a little bit cheaper. The smaller right. ones are, are yeah. typically like much cheaper. Yeah. So could we maybe take this division approach and just hack up all these different groups and have like micro conferences and then everybody can go? Or would that just cause too many groups? Well, I mean, I think it would it would advantage people who could go to more conferences. Right. So, you know, if we only go to... So typically, I go to one, maybe two conferences a year. If people are going to four and five conferences, then they're going to be able to um, kind of reach a broader audience with what they're um, presenting, but also kind of, you know, I'm seeing a lot more information there. Um, so I think that would be a potential downside whereas if we have one major conference everybody's going to the same conference there's no like a team b team type thing of yeah. you know i was thinking like ted and then ted x and then i don't know yeah. ted like double uh, i don't know but, but now yeah. there's all these ted ted triple X. <laughs> that's a different one i'm very different <laughs> yeah. i've not done that one um but you know so it's kind of like there's the different leagues and then again we're just kind of um promoting that type of disparity that we're trying to address in the first place. And so that right. would be my concern. Because I think already it has that type of feel, right? I mean, a, le a regional conference, um, you know, if you tell people like, oh, yeah, I'm presenting research at a regional conference, they're like, oh, wow, good for you. But if you're presenting at a more prestigious conference, obviously, then that's going to be a little bit of a different feel. So so I, I would worry about that, that it would kind of present that or promote that that disparity. Yeah. I'm just throwing ideas out. No, I, mean, I think I think that would help address it. Uh, so the sort of root cause of like it's expensive to go to conferences, and uh, people with more money, more prestige, are able to do that. I think breaking it out into like lots of smaller conferences would solve a version of that problem because then the, the conference individual conferences would become a bit cheaper. But I think then it it leads to Smith's comment that. Well, now instead of like going to like one conference, now I can go to five. And even if like yeah. I go from like $2,000 for a conference to $1,000 for a conference, it's still a net cost actually like went up in that case. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that we actually need a more fundamental change to like how we think about pricing in conferences. I, th I think we actually need to change the price structure in conferences. So before we get to that, so one thing I did want to point out, and I mean, this is probably a disclaimer, Always, but you know, we're all coming from the same university. 
So we're coming from one particular perspective. And so when we say like, oh, hey, there's funding issues. Well, you were saying you talk to, to other people and stuff. So I'm guessing other masters, comprehensives also have funding uh, um, issues. Yeah. But, you know, for us, we basically get like $1,000 a year for conferences. So, you know, if we spend it well, we can maybe get to one conference. If it's, you know, like the um, JDM conferences in, um, I think it's in Montreal or something like that. So it's obviously not going to cover going to one conference Even your poutine budget. Like, yeah. <laughs> budget. Right. So, so, you know, we're coming at it from, from that perspective. And then also being at a, um, a master's um, institution, just the salaries are going to be lower than at, at, like, let's say R1s or something like that. So there, there are a lot of different things. And so that's kind of where we're approaching this. Yeah. But then I think that gets to your idea you're saying of changing the, the pricing structure. Yeah. Conference revolution, like okay. heads on pikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, so I guess to, to unpack this a little bit or to, to set it up a little bit. Um, so we've talked about, you know, conferences are expensive. They are also places where you can forge connections with people that presenting like grants prestige. So like, there are things that we get out of conferences, uh, professionally and, and personally. Um, but then when we think about what a conference costs, they're, like my my like back of the napkin calculation that is is gonna vary for different conferences, but for like a national conference, uh, a three to four day conference, like you're talking somewhere around two thousand uh, dollars. So sometimes it'll be a bit more expensive, sometimes a little bit less. That's where like you know airfare, hotel registration. Um, obviously, like, there are ways of like making that a bit cheaper if you're rooming with people and, and things like that. Um, but then the worry that that brings up is okay. So if every conference is gonna cost let's say again, for the sake of argument, $2,000. That means that some people are going to be able to pay that more often than other people are. And if going to conferences grants benefits in terms of new research ideas, new authorship capabilities, uh, just general prestige, which then can help things like grant funding, what you have is a system where people at richer institutions are going to be more able to reap those benefits than people at, at relatively poor institutions. You also have a different type of class problem, like assistant professors versus full professors. And so one thing that I, I think that we should really give like a hard look to when we think about conferences is that we should maybe, I mean, some conferences do this in, in various types of ways, but like we should actually think about trying to radically adjust the way that conferences are priced um, for going. Now, you can't do anything about like airfare uh, or right. hotels like directly, but I think there are individual levers, or uh, sorry, sort of uh, indirect levers that you can pull on. And we do a bit of this already. Like we recognize, for example, like SPSB, the conference registration, there's grad student, or I think it actually is, there's this undergrad. There's grad student, there's postdoc early career, and then like full registration. Uh, and so they, they differentially price registration based on sort of where you stand in the, the hierarchy of, of the field. Um, so there's sort of an, uh, well, implicit maybe, uh, but yeah. even like an explicit sort of realization of a, of a difference to pay and trying to sort of value that. I think that we should take that further and say, okay, so we recognize like a postdoc can't pay what a professor can, or that an undergrad can't pay what a professor can. But in the same way, like someone at a master's granting institution can't pay what someone at an R1 institution does, uh, both because our salaries are dramatically lower, um, but also because like we get grant funding less often, and so we have fewer offsets. And so I guess I'm curious, like, so that's the problem. for solutions, I think solutions are uh, much harder to come about. Like one thing you could do, uh, and I'm curious like what you think is like we could say, okay, well certainly it's easy to do like a sliding scale for registration. We do a version of that already. And we could sort of intensify that and say, actually, like if you are a full professor, we are going to like make it yet more expensive yeah. for you. Yeah. Uh, and we're gonna use that, like we're gonna use that expense to further subsidize not just undergrads and graduate students, but also uh, assistant professors or full professors, associate professors at non-like R1 institutions. So I guess this is a bit about not just like your rank as a professor, but like your institution. And I'm arguing like those things should matter when you think about conference pricing. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that's one of those that like 
I mean, you, you kind of said this, that it's, it, it's an interesting idea putting it into practice is hard and trying to figure out like, well, how much of a difference would it make? So like, for example, if, um, you know, we did this and then now because I'm coming from, you know, a master's institution, I pay a hundred dollars less, um, for a conference. Right. Does that, I mean, you know, I, I like a hundred dollars. So, so yes, it makes a difference, but it's not like that by itself is necessarily going to allow me to go to another conference. So we might have to, I mean, you'd have to radically. Change. Yeah. I think the, the problem that I run into is that the scale of the change would have to be gigantic because yeah. like, yeah, a hundred dollars would be great, mm -hmm. but a hundred dollars isn't going to buy me the ability to go to another conference. Like we're going to have to talk about a thousand dollars would make a difference. Okay. But now like now you're inputting a giant change to the way that we think about pricing. And it's not that like, I don't want to like paint a picture of like full professors at Arwen institutions are just like rolling around in like Scrooge McDuckian vaults of money. <laughs> Cause like that, that isn't the case. Uh, but, but certainly like when you compare, um, like people at different institutions and, and people at different ranks, like there is a market difference in ability to pay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the salaries, just because, you know, it's a fun thing to do, look at public people's uh, salaries. Um, you know, full professors at R1 institutions um, are going to be, you know, it, it varies widely, obviously, but they're going to be in the $120,000 uh, a year and well up from that. Whereas then at a master's institution, a, um, you know, assistant at master's institution, they're going to be starting at, you know, 60, 65. So, I mean, they're making double. And so then would that suggest that they should tax pay? the rich? Yeah. I mean, and, tax I mean the that's, rich. A, that's effectively what it ends up being, but it's, 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 um, a help, it's having them help other people who wouldn't normally be able to attend or couldn't attend as many, um, and to get some of the advantages, but also there, I would say there's also not just advantages, um, to the, the individual, but I would say there's um, advantages to the, to the area as a whole, this increasing diversity of, ideas, topics, um, you know, backgrounds, perspectives that people are coming from. And so that, to have that increase in diversity, yeah, you're taxing the, you know, I'm doing air quotes, rich, but you're also kind of helping the field as a whole. It's not just to help one individual person. So it still could, there's, I still think there could be a, a merit and a value in it, but overall, but it just isn't possible would it do much i mean there's some conferences that ask you for your just christian income uh when you are registering and then they scale your uh it, it's a it's a sliding scale mm -hmm. that like conference registration is either um there's a base and it either increases or decreases based on like what your agi mm -hmm. is yeah. uh i mean that would be a very straightforward like we're assuming people are honest uh, yeah. but but that would be a fairly straightforward way of Dealing again, that deals with like conference registration, but I think then you need a sort of second step of increasing uh, the price for for people who sort of make more, and then maybe offering like real travel grants, like mm -hmm. trying to like expand travel grant type of funding, and then that can help offset things like hotels, uh, things like airfare, and then like Chris's solution about like maybe like breaking up mm -hmm. the big conferences into smaller conferences. Now then, um, you can have people go to make more of these conferences because like the conferences themselves become cheaper. Yeah. Another spitball idea. Um, so kind of going back to this idea of like a hundred versus a thousand dollars and can that get me a second conference? What if we did something like a pay what you can model? So not just a sliding scale, but say like here's minimum suggested suggested you could even frame it as a donation, mm -hmm. right? Kind of like what, you know, people do on Patreon and stuff like that mm -hmm. for support. Um, and that way, you know, if you're someone that has like, you know, a thousand bucks for a conference, you say, okay, I don't mind throwing in 500 for this one. Cause now I know that I've got 500 for this mm -hmm. second conference. Um, I don't know how that would work going up the chain. Right. Yeah, Cause right. I think people would, would be cheap if they could. Um, but at the lower end that might work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, using other areas as a model, a lot of the pay what you can actually does work pretty well. And there, yeah. while there are going to be some people at the top who say, well, fine, then I'm going to pay virtually nothing. 
typically most people don't do that and people at the top oftentimes will um, put you know a lot more in there there are other um, strategies that they use to incentivize that so yeah. they'll actually have essentially like a leaderboard and so you can mm-hmm. have the people uh, who have um, basically given maybe it's above a certain amount typically they don't say exactly what it was these are our platinum donators <laughs> kind of um, but the idea would be hey but if you get a few people a few of those people to donate 10 grand that actually can be really useful for the emerald platinum inner circle I know and, like, and, and, now, and maybe this is getting bad maybe this is making things worse the Tristitos conference yeah. for social psychology yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we should have yeah corporate sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Just sell the rights to yeah. different uh, different things. I mean, yeah. we already do that. I mean, I'm not saying that we should do that. I, I think it's messed up. <laughs> endowed chairs, uh, yes. but but yeah, I mean, we do it in other domains. So like maybe like this is the Tostitos uh, conference on judgment and decision making. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Yeah, I was I was thinking about something completely different. I was thinking about the fact that like now we have another statistic to track. Right, so it's like you've got your H index and then you've got your M index for, uh, for like money donated. Yeah, you know, yeah, you put that on your CV. Well, I've donated X amount. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, so I, it could be just another marker of prestige, like it would be giving a talk at a prestigious yeah. conference. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, I like the idea though the pay with you. I mean, it would be you know similar to the slagging scale, idea, presumably. But I, I mean, actually, no. I would say it's a little bit different though. Because I think there would be times where even if you're coming from a different, um, you know, from here, um, if you have grant funding, well, then you don't necessarily, like, need that discount that you would normally get. So the pay what you want would still allow people with grant funding, or if that's the only conference they're going to that year, whatever it is, that they could still pay the the higher amount um, and make that choice. Whereas, um, you know, but if there's, like, a normal year and they don't have grant funding, then they could try to, you know, pay it a little bit less. So that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, and you're the JDM person, mm-hmm. but I was thinking like that offsets the cost benefit ratio. Right? Yeah. So like, if you pay minimal cost, any benefit you get is going to be great. Yeah. And I think we've already established conferences are pretty awesome. So. Yeah. But. My concern is that if we, so I like this idea, but I worry that incentivizing the donations would involve like now you get to go to the Tostitos banquet oh, and yeah, yeah, then it further exacerbates. You get cheesy death with your lunch. <laughs> Yeah, and then it exacerbates the the hierarchy. At yeah, the yeah. No, I I think that that's the the areas that I've seen where they um uh put the um who's uh, basically paid a lot of money. Um, one of them was I'm blanking on the um it's for like um computer and video games. Um, the humble bundle thing. So anyway, it's 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 a pay what you want type thing. Um, but there, there, there's no like reputational concerns. And, like the people who are buying these things are not then going to go hang out in a room together, and then they're going to know that you know so and so was the person who spent you know five hundred dollars on a game that they could have paid whatever they wanted. Um, so yeah, that that's different than a conference where yeah, you, you know, putting you know so and so person at the top then kind of creates this weird feel, and they have to they get more because of it and so on. So yeah, I agree. I don't. I'm backtracking. I'm not sure that would be a good, even though that worked in other areas, I don't think that would be a, a good thing here. Yeah, I'm not that worried about that because I think that we already have that structure. Yeah. And I think it's already pretty toxic that you have sort of higher, uh, the, the sort of higher echelons are clicky. Uh, not, again, not all of them, but like conferences are clicky. Yeah. Um, and so like, okay, now if you have like the winner's circle of <laughs> yeah. like super donators, Okay, I mean they can go and sit in a room together, but like they probably all already do. Yeah, uh, that's a fair point. Yeah, we're just formally recognizing them as uh, yeah super yeah whatever. I mean we can give them smoking jackets and like you can go and have brandy <laughs> and cigars in like a wood paneled room. Like fine, as I mean I I don't care as long as like we can like pull enough resources out of you that we can make the conference overall more egalitarian because mm-hmm. um, then we can always you know set fire to the building and you know just just burn down the uh, the, the panel group. Yeah. I love that you started by connecting this to social justice, and <laughs> by the end of the conversation, you're promoting the hierarchy. Yeah, I'm fine if there's an elite ruling class, as long as like the plebeians get a slightly better deal. <laughs> no, I mean, like in my in my like absolute 
this would never happen, but like my preferred universe is that we actually get serious about taking into account the sort of markers of power and prestige in our field and like wealth mm -hmm. is certainly one of those. Mm -hmm. And then we get really aggressive about saying like, you have the means. And so like, we are going to tax you in, in a way. Um, and we are going to use that conference tax to subsidize more egalitarian uh, participation in conferences so that more and different uh, people get to speak and attend at this conference. But like, that's simply never going to happen. And so I'm like, I guess my compromise is like, fine, like, I'll, I'll, I'll be okay with like this weird, uh, ruling class in like a dark room as long as I can get my egalitarian goals, uh, sort of realized. Yeah, you're right. It's never going to happen. Yeah. But your egalitarian goals are only falsely going to be realized because the same people who are donating are the people, some of those people will be the people who have reputations for misusing their students mm -hmm. for sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And now they have even more power and prestige and therefore can continue to act inappropriately and have sort of permission now to act inappropriately right. at the conference and in their home institution. Like a moral licensing thing that they're, you yeah. know, oh, well, I, you know, no, I'm, I'm terrible a, here, I'm a but yeah. I'm, a, I'm a, yeah, what was it, Tostitos Super Platinum Emerald <laughs> 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 member? That's what they, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I guess my my response is just a really cynical, like, yeah, but isn't that already the case? <laughs> Like, people, like, we, we know that, like, people who are super high in prestige and power, like, feel, not, not talking about, like, our field specifically, but, like, the research on prestige and power, or power specifically, less, less about prestige, but having power gives people a sense of entitlement to misbehave. Um, and so, yeah, they might feel a sense of entitlement to misbehave, but I would argue, like, that's already present. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. That seems to be, like, systemic. I don't know how to solve that one. Right, but do you want to just increase the possibility? I guess I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, would we actually increase it, or is it already, like, so prevalent and toxic that, like, we're at ceiling? We're, we're not yeah. at ceiling. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think it might work. Let's, yeah. let's not pull it that thread. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. I don't yeah. want to think about it. Well, and I also just think, so our conference, or our organization is, is um, talking about adopting like a conference attendance, uh, like, I don't, I don't know, ethical yeah. Oh, yeah. code of conduct. Code of That's yeah. what I'm yeah. for. And I know SPSB has mm -hmm. one, yeah. and other organizations have one. So I'm right. just trying to think of, like, we have a code of conduct, but implicitly our culture is promoting these other behaviors. I don't know. We've now transitioned into a whole other conversation. No, yeah. you're, you're right. You're right. I, and I, I agree with you that like having the super inner circle of donors would probably exacerbate a, a problem of like privilege and, and sort of means to misbehave. You're, you're, you're right. I, I think like my cynical approach is not a good answer to that. So semi-related to that, how do you guys feel about like keynote addresses in um, conferences? Like yeah, and so a time where, hey, you know, typically let's say there's like three different sessions, four different sections of talks, it's like, nope, we're just going to have one person talk for an hour, you know, everybody else just typically gets, uh, you know, 15 minutes and they're competing with a bunch of other people. We get one person to talk for an hour, but they're super special, so we should all go watch them. Do you think it's worth it? Or do you go there to the keynote address? Well, do you even go to them? Do you go there you're like, yep, that's all the research that this person's been doing for the last 45 years, why'd I go to that? I don't know, how do you guys feel about this? The one time I went, I left feeling like I hadn't gained anything. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, yeah. Like you said, I, I know this research. They've been doing it for decades now. Like, that was fine. Our keynotes usually are not um, researcher-heavy. So our uh, keynotes are typically um, people... So, for example, this is the one that just came to mind. Amanda Knox 
came and had a conversation mm-hmm. with someone who is very well known as a researcher in our field. Um, and so, and this is a woman in Seattle, because that's where she's based. And so, um, normally our keynotes are actually people who are somehow connected to the practice of mm-hmm. the legal system. So if it's a wrongful conviction kind of topic, or prosecutorial misconduct, or or nonprofits who are working in mm-hmm. the field. And so I feel like they are of value. I mean, I'd say 50-50 sometimes, I'm not that interested. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes we have lawyers, judges, um, people who have been affected by wrongful conviction, things of that nature. And so they're much more real world. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm torn because like the some of the ones that I've gone to have been really interesting. The even if the people I know a lot of their research has been interesting to see kind of I don't know almost behind the scenes sometimes when they'll talk about these things. Um, but other times it just seems like a I don't say like a waste of resources, but kind of. Where and they're like, expensive because you usually like pay for that. that speaking. And that's, yeah. that's the thing is they're typically not always, but typically getting money. Um, it's uh, um, you could think of resources in terms of time because then it's fewer people who would normally give give a talk because you know during their hour, um, you know normally there would be four people in three different sessions, and so there's like twelve people who could have given short talks versus that one person, and then oftentimes. It's a person that everybody already knows. Like this person right. doesn't need the, I don't know. The, the, okay. So, so let me offer. I mean, I, I agree with absolutely everything that you just said. However, uh, <laughs> however, but um, what if the keynote talks aren't for us? Uh, so, like we as professors, we're. I, it sounds like we're saying like if it's someone in our field and they're giving a topic. It can be entertaining. Like mm-hmm. I've certainly been to keynotes where like I know all the research that this person is going to present, but I still like really love the talk because mm-hmm. they're a good speaker and I'm entertained. But think about undergrads or grad students attending that talk who might not, who might have more of like an inkling, and this could be a catalyst for getting them excited. Is that a worthwhile use of a of a keynote in that case? So I agree with what you're saying. However, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that's interesting. Would it promote some of the, I don't know to use a terrible term, like idol worship in the sense of like, hey, look at this person. They've yeah. published 8 million papers. That's your goal. That's the person that we all celebrate. So therefore, if you're not that, you're not successful. Is that, could that also possibly happen? So yes, it could get some people excited, but at the same time, then it could also promote these values that maybe we don't hold. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I I think that we a challenge is that like you have to be careful then that like the keynote is not offering this like okay, this person is a model. Like the the talk is not about the person. The talk is about like the research. And so I think by by I mean a good keynote that would do more more I think like good rather than harm would be one where the focus really is not so much about like celebrating like a person doing mm-hmm. the research so you have like you know the single genius trope uh, but mm-hmm. instead you say like okay here's a body of research that tells us something really cool about the human condition and I think that could be inspiring for for students uh, again I don't know that we are the intended audience for, for a mm-hmm. keynote, but, but I think that they might have worth. Yeah, and, and I'm, that's a good point, though, that maybe it's for a different audience, and maybe it just needs to be in my head of, like, all right, well, I just know that I'm not the audience, so then I use that time to meet with other people, right. whereas then the, the um, you know, grad students, undergrads, early career folks who would get a lot out of it, or even later people, like the people who are just interested in that topic, then they can use that, and so I just need to... Yeah. Yeah. So I I might walk back from my original statement a little bit. I think it's a factor of the size of the conference. So I've had keynotes at like triple SP and whatnot that were awesome. And I really enjoyed those. And I think it's just because it's, you know, two, 300 people in the room. And I mean, at least the ones I've seen recently, it has been more about the idea and not so much the person. Um, So it's, you know, a new theory, a new framework that's being proposed. And I, I felt inspired after one of these talks and actually went up to the keynote speaker and hashed out some ideas. Um, I don't think that you can do that, though, at SPSP and certainly not at APS or APA. I, I don't know. I've never been to APS or APA, but that's the sense that I get. Like, you, you couldn't approach that person and, and hash out the ideas. Yeah. 
Where, whereas you can do that at a regional conference. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's an interesting idea of like, so maybe a keynote is actually more worth it at a smaller conference, um, whereas at the bigger ones, but typically at the bigger ones, they're, those are the ones where they're for sure going to have it because obviously they want to promote it and everything like that. I think our consensus is everything is more worth it at a small conference. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Smaller conferences are better. Well, and that's, I mean, and that's interesting because like I haven't gone to many of the smaller, like the, the really smaller ones. And so maybe that's the thing. So maybe it is. Bad, exactly. <laughs> well, here, this will, this will be, um, my, my last, um, thread of the non elitist thing. Uh, apparently I'm just like bitter about all like high prestige people. Um, what about like awards for, um, like, cause oftentimes at conferences they will be like, Hey, we're giving the, you know, so-and-so career award to a career award to this person. Um, how do we do that? Like, does that person really need like the 27th recognition that they've been publishing for 45 years and, you know, have done a good job for the field? Like, who does that serve? Why, why is that a thing? It means they'll come to the conference. That's true. And if we tax like the crap out of them for coming to the conference. Ah, yeah, yeah there you go. So that, that is the yeah. lure that we dangle in front of them to go ahead and draws of our pricing structure clamp around their ankles. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. We're going to give you an award. Now you're going to have to pay about 20 grand to yep. get it. Yeah. But yeah, that seems reasonable as yep. well. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I don't know. In our division, we have a lot of uh, student and early career awards. Mm -hmm. And so I find those. Yeah. I'm good with nice. those. Yeah. yeah. Although, I mean, there's so many, not with the students so much, but with the early career one, there's so many politics involved because it depends on who's nominating. And, um. And um, who's on the committee? And I, yeah. I mean, politics isn't necessarily the right word. It's also just awareness, right? So, like, if if people miss the nomination announcement, then they fail to nominate other people, and yeah. um, and so, or if I don't know, if there are, if you're at a program where it's important to the program that a lot of their faculty have awards then that program is going to make a concerted effort to nominate people regularly for every level. And so there, yeah. So I, I always question the, the value of those awards where it's reliant on nomination. Yeah, I'm, I'm deeply ambivalent. Uh, <laughs> so on the one hand, I think that... It's because you want an award, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I, I think a couple of years ago, I would have, I would have totally had to like, yes, I absolutely do. Like, I want, I want that recognition. I want that sweet, sweet hit of recognition. Um, now, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't value it as much. I mean, recognition is nice. Uh, but so my, my, like, the sort of downside for me is, is exactly what you said, that it sort of rewards squeaky wheels, squeaky departments. It rewards... Maybe not better research, but people who are really good at weaving a good yarn and really good at being self-promoters. Uh, not that those are necessarily like bad traits, uh, but then like what you're, is the award sort of tracking the goodness of, of a research program or is it tracking who does a good job of being socially connected and self-promoting? If the latter, then I think that the awards are, are not great. If the former, oh, okay, fine. Uh, with regards to like late, uh, later stage awards, I feel like, you know, if you've been in the field for like 40 years, it's a nice like crowning jewel on a, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like a little bit of recognition is, is maybe good. Like maybe as you're retiring, like maybe like that is like the proper place to recognize you. Uh, not when you're sort of in mid-stride and like giving you yet another laurel uh, to wear around your head, like maybe, maybe not then, but when people retire, sure, um, we should recognize exceptional scholars and teachers uh, and, and other people who do service for uh, the organization. Right. I, yeah, no, I mean, I, we can get into a whole other episode about like, all right, well then, but would that be equally distributed across people with their particular biases? are, you know, in terms of granting those awards, does everybody get that particular award? Oh, yeah, I mean, that, that's probably like a future pod, but that's I would the, say, yeah. like, yes, it would be nice, and also the process is probably fucked. Yeah. Um, so, like, <laughs> I, like the, those yes. are my, my dueling opinions yeah. about it. Yeah, I agree. 
I always feel a desire to like sum up the episode <laughs> at the end. You uh, not leave it on me saying everything is terrible. Yeah, exactly. But, but I mean, no. But but one thing just to to sum up one thought was I really do, Chris, like your idea of like the pay what you can or pay what you want, and and with some you know stipulations here and there. I thought that would be an interesting um, idea. Um, now they'll probably be like you know, 8 million, not 8 million, but a bunch of listeners who were going to say like, well, here's why it's flawed and here's why it's flawed and here's why it's flawed. That'd be interesting. But I did really like that idea. So I think, I don't know, you were on the committee for the triple SP or no, what were you on? Yeah, yeah, I was on the program for yeah. the committee for triple SP yeah. two years ago. There you go. All right, get back on that and just change it then. That's how it works. Make, right? it, make it pay as you go. Make it pay, yeah, pay, yeah. I mean, there, it, it is a, a little bit of, I mean, there, there's almost a liberal passing of a hat at some yep. point. Um, and people are pretty good about giving in, in that context. Okay. Um, but I think it works because it's a smaller community where yeah, you yeah. have sort of face-to-face accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in a larger community, I just don't believe in people's good nature. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think you're going to get a lot of free riders, and I think like the free riders will not be will not be evenly distributed across ability to pay. Yeah, maybe uh, your profession. Yeah, there's some biological models about that, but we don't have to get into that. Uh, People are terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Anything else? All right. Well, thank you for listening to Marginally Significant, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Marginally Significant. We'd love to hear if you have comments, questions, or any feedback about today's episode. You can message us on Twitter at MarginallySig. Our email address is MarginallySig at gmail.com. And there's a contact form on our website, which is marginallysig.com. However you contact us, we'll be sure to reply. Uh, If you're interested in supporting the show, we'd also love getting reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And finally, uh, you can post about the show on Twitter, Facebook, or any other social media platform that you use. However you support the show, we really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.